I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> Robbie Robbie's weekly. Little reverse pass. Oh, Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. This podcast is brought to you in association with Volkswagen, a proud sponsor of Irish Rugby. Gavin Casey here, manning the studio in rainy Ireland. And I'm joined on the line from Japan by Murray Kinsella of the 42 and Owen Toulon as well. Murray, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Um, not too sunny here actually today, a little bit overcast for the first time and it kind of has cooled down slightly. So uh, it's only about 22, 23, which is still pretty decent, I guess, compared to Ireland. But uh, I think the players will enjoy that. Maybe the the heat is going to ease away a little bit now. How are you getting on, on? Yeah, I'm good. I'm actually a little bit further north up in Osaka. I'm I'm doing a week's consultancy at a club called Kintetsu. Kintetsu own uh, one of the train lines in Japan. So, yeah, enjoying my week up there. It's it's been an interesting start. Excellent, interesting week ahead as well. We'll have the latest on Ireland's injuries or. Hopefully by Saturday, a lack thereof in a couple of moments. But firstly, Murray, will we even have a game this weekend? <laughs> we'll have a game. I'm, I'm pretty certain of that. Um, obviously, people have seen by now that there's a typhoon brewing in the Western Pacific Ocean. Um, I, I thought it was Typhoon Haggis, first of all, when I saw it, because it, it looks very similar to that, to be fair. Uh, it's Hagibis, to be fair to it. It, it means kind of velocity. Uh, and by all accounts, this is turning into a almost a super typhoon. The forecasts are suggesting it's going to be extremely strong and that it is uh, heading for Japan, depending on where you read, depending on who your forecaster is. And I have all sorts of tabs open at the moment it, it really varies where it's going to hit japan but it looks like it is going to come here in in some shape or form by saturday sunday time so basically world rugby have as they have all along with these typhoon warnings they're they're trying to keep on top of it and, and find out what's going to happen the forecasting from a long way out is tricky you, you really you can see a massive change in where things are going to end up within the space of 24 hours so we may not have a call in, until later in the week however they're they're preparing it for the event that um, it's not able to be played in in Fukuoka, so um, they aren't quite saying on the record what their contingency plan is. My understanding is that they'll either move the venue, change the venue, or potentially delay the game by a day. I, I would say the venue change is almost more likely at this stage if the if the if the storm is going to hit here. So that could potentially really shake things up for Ireland from their point of view. They're they're going ahead as as if the game is happening here on Saturday, and and we certainly could end up with that situation obviously depending on where the storm ends up but it is a bit of a kind of out, outlier factor that you don't quite have to expect for a, a world cup but i guess in japan you do and, and there was plenty of talk of this beforehand so far all the warnings um and the threats from typhoons have kind of faded away they they've either petered out or, or changed direction and and not quite affected uh the the rugby yet but this one is a little bit concerning for, for World Rugby, certainly, and Ireland will definitely be checking and refreshing their weather apps every couple of minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the fake weather media have been running amok the last couple of weeks, but this one does look <laughs> particularly threatening. Um, Owen, Murray mentioned there how a team wouldn't necessarily have legislated for conditions like these and just an external factor that you mightn't have to contend with back home. Obviously, they're going to train away as if the game is happening, but... From a psychological standpoint, I'm sure it must be a tiny little factor there that you're not even certain where you're going to be playing or 
maybe even when you're going to be playing if the game was to be put back to a Sunday. Now, obviously, both teams have to contend with that as well, but I presume it's a li- it must be a little bit on your mind. It definitely would be a little bit concerning. I actually think I was probably involved in the last uh, international that was called off. I remember being in France, uh, I think it might have been 2012, potentially. And uh, we got to Stade de France and uh, did a warm-up. It was in the depths of winter and uh, there was snow around Paris all weekend. And I remember turning around after after setting up in the stands and, and a look and Wayne Barnes was... Um, on the pitch with the two coaches and the two captains, I thought that was a little bit peculiar, and uh, and the game had to be had to be called off due to a frozen pitch, which was which was quite unbelievable back back then. And uh, we had to turn around and play France again on our bye week. So um, yeah, it's not something that players really expect to happen or staff. And so I'd imagine it'd be in the back of their minds, but I'm sure they're just kind of focused on on the process um, and the games if it's going to go ahead. Mm. And the thing is, uh, Gav, just from, from this end, the thing is that they really need the game to go ahead. I don't think we're going to end up in a situation where Ireland's match is cancelled, they get a, ze- a nil-all draw on their record, and then Scotland potentially beat Russia and Japan and go through, and Ireland get knocked out of World Cup based on based on uh, the weather. I just think that would be an absolute farcical situation. And while R- Rugby yeah. have said, listen, if this happens, if there's a weather, like weather condition that, that forces the game to be cancelled then we'll go to a nil-all draw and that'll be on their record but it would just be absolute lunacy if that was the case on the on the final weekend the, the decisive pool games and certainly with Japan the host going through and Ireland missing out in that event would they Ireland would kick up a huge huge fuss it, w- it wouldn't be a good look for the tournament and I think they'll do everything in their power to make sure that this game goes ahead yeah, I was just going to ask you about that, Murray, because like obviously that's the official line and had been even coming into the tournament that if a game was to be cancelled due to adverse weather conditions, it would be a nil-all, etc. But they have said in their statement that they have a contingency plan. So like, where, what's with the change of heart or where exactly do they stand? Like in what event could it be a nil-all? Would that be if, if you know, suddenly the entire country was engulfed in a super typhoon and you couldn't play the game even on the Sunday? Yeah, I guess that would be. I guess that would be the circumstance there, and you would hope that this typhoon is is not going to hit Japan at all. But if it is, it's just limited to a, a, sm- a small portion of the country, and you don't see all the games being called off or cancelled because then you wouldn't be able to obviously shift them elsewhere. Whereas at the moment, if you did need to move venue, then you, you could probably do that. There'd be enough stadiums that don't have fixtures scheduled that you could um, shuffle it around a little bit. So I think they probably realised as the tournament's gone on and certainly looking into this it would just be such a bad look like we just mentioned you can't have a, a World Cup quarterfinal decided either way or rather the teams who go into it decided either way based on a, a typhoon or that, that wind and rain that's going to possibly come with it so I think they've had that change of heart because they really need to and there's already been a bit of <clears throat> I don't know a bit of negativity around the tournament because some of the handling errors because of the conditions and, and obviously a lot of focus on, on high tackles and, and deservedly so we need, obviously that needs to, to get out of the game but um, I think World Rugby just realised that it would just be insane really for it to be decided that way Yeah, we'll proceed here anyway as if the game is going ahead uh, in the likelihood that it does. And uh, let's talk then about Ireland's squad. And Murray, you probably have the latest there regarding injuries to Jordy Murphy, who we knew uh, had popped his rib. And then Joey Carberry is, by all accounts, like the great hurling teams before him, 
flying and training. Uh, and there's a latest then as well on uh, Robbie Henshaw and Chris Farrell. Yeah, I suppose you you take it with a pinch of salt when someone's flying and training. And I know they mention <laughs> personal bests all the time. To me, that's quite pointed and, and trying to put across that good image um, yeah. of the team being in good nick, etc. But it was positive. Jordy Murphy came in actually himself and did media just after Andy Farrell said he's he's still here and he's going to stay with us. Yeah, he did. He popped his rib. He got it back in, he said, but then it popped again. So he had to come off the pitch and I was obviously worried about maybe having to head home. They say he'll train fully on Thursday this week. I, I wonder if that's the case. To be honest, he was doing very little at training today and it would be a big shock to me if he featured this weekend. Um, but they're deciding to keep him out there a guy who knows the, the setup really well. And realistically, at this stage, if you're bringing someone else out, him having just arrived, the other person's probably not going to play it all either. So it just makes more sense to, to keep him here. Robbie Henshaw, they say, is back in full training. And that is the understanding, all right, that he's going to come back and play against Samoa. Um, he, we spoke to him the last couple of days and he's just so hungry to get out there. And his importance to Ireland was underlined by the fact they've kept him here. Um, Chris Farrell back in full training tomorrow he'll be able to take contact having come through those concussion protocols and, and Carberry yeah Andy Farrell said he's flying he's in a great place um, running around the training ground uh, I'm, I'm not sure exactly if that was the case but if it was it's it's excellent news for them because again he adds an, another option another dimension and another way of playing to, to the Irish 23 or, or wherever he fits in there so that's positive as well I guess from, from that point of view so all in all Pretty decent update for them. Um, and they've had two good days off here in Fukuoka. Got away from the media a bit um, and did their own thing. And, and lots of guys doing some enjoyable stuff and just maybe de-stressing and, and recovering physically as well. So it was well-timed in that sense. And, and certainly there was a, a good bounce, as, as Andy Farrell mentioned, around the squad today. For sure, yeah. I was going to ask you, Owen, about that. Like I thought some of those quotes from Farrell were reasonably interesting now he does mention the personal best in the gym uh, which is essentially a PR job we know but just him talking about how it's been a very pressurized environment even since the selection of the last Wales game before Ireland got on the plane and he said there's a there's been a lot of stuff going on as far as mental prep the pressure of getting selected getting on the plane getting into the World Cup and the big hype of the first game uh, that they've been planning for for quite some time then you've you're going into a six-day turnaround, five-day turnaround, subpar performances, and there's a lot of weight on these players' shoulders. So to have those couple of days off at a fairly suitable juncture, as Murray points out, how big a difference will that make, even those couple of days um, where you're going into an eight-day turnaround instead of that five- or six-day turnaround prior? Yeah, I don't think it could be underestimated, to be honest. I think it's always ideal to go into a break off the back of a win. I think if the break had come uh, following the Japan result, I think it wouldn't have been as as enjoyable. So the fact that they, they got the result in the five points against Russia meant they could generally probably take that mental break as well as physical break with two short turnarounds. I remember in, in 2011, after, after we beat Australia in, in Eden Park, we went to Lake Taupo for a few days in between playing, uh, I think we went to Russia after or played Russia in Rotorua after that. And it was just a, just a kind of great environment to get the players away from rugby altogether and just do something completely different uh, from a mental and physical perspective. So um, I, I, I think the weekend would have done them good and kind of re-energised them and reinvigorated them going into probably a, a big game against Samoa and then hopefully a, a quarter final. So uh, I, think, I think the timing was probably pretty good. To what extent can players actually switch off then, Owen, during that little brief period of respite like do you still have 
sort of one eye on upcoming games or can you actually remove yourself from that pressure cooker and enjoy yourself for a few hours? Probably depends on the individual, but uh, but also the environment you're in. And, and from all accounts, it, it, it's a pretty tight-knit group within within the Irish camp. Everyone gets along. And I think once you're in that environment where I get the social environment is good and, and people can go out and have a coffee or go out for a beer, um, I think that generally leads to, to people being able to kind of kick back and get get their head out of rugby and um, everything that goes into it. So, but always depends on the individual and some guys would struggle to kind of um, step away from that intensity but I, I think especially the the younger guys in particular probably wouldn't have a problem with um, switching off Murray we know that Keen Healy was sharpening his knives uh, during his time off with Peter Romani um, <laughs> he had some interesting things to say about that Japan game uh, he mentioned his own fitness how he wasn't particularly impressed by the burning sensation in his lungs and he'd put in a few extra fitness sessions himself as an individual, uh, done a little bit of extra video work as well just to improve himself and, and make sure he's best prepped for uh, the Samoa game if he does feature. And I suppose we complain plenty about uh, rugby players at this level kind of not giving too much away, so we should probably uh, take the hat off when they actually do open up a little bit and give an honest assessment. Um, what what did you make of that? Just, uh, just the fact that he felt... He was a little bit lacking individually in the fitness stakes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I thought it was it was really interesting and and probably reflects what we discussed here on this podcast with Owen before about those stints of ball in play time where Japan invariably came out on top in, in that game, even though the total figure wasn't uh, particularly high. It was it was those ball in play sequences just that lasted two and a half three minutes where where Japan excelled and yeah, he was honest in saying that he wasn't quite there. He obviously had that little ankle setback I guess just before the tournament and maybe that just gave him a a slight little hit personally but for him to address that and and actually go out and do something about it over that what was I guess a break for him with the Russia game uh, is really positive and he was honest also about the scrum he's like you know we're we're almost need to let the shackles off with that and and go and attack teams and obviously they're frustrated with that penalty that Japan had at the scrum a a big moment in the game and um, potentially from, from Ireland's point of view certainly it should have gone the other way, really, but uh, he's honest in saying we can go out and attack more, especially in the right areas of the pitch. So he is a he is an experienced uh, player at, at this level, and he's certainly done his fair share of media stuff. So yeah, his, his honesty was certainly much appreciated. And interesting to hear about his his knife making um, trip as well. He's certainly enjoyed that, and again, a load a load of different things going on over the weekend. Some guys were going surfing, others were trying the food around here. Fukuoka is actually a lovely little city. It's actually a big enough city, but it's a lovely spot with loads to do. So they've definitely enjoyed that side of things. I'm actually interested to get Owen's take on on Ireland because we haven't spoken to you on the pod really since um, since last week. And I guess your sense, Owen, of where they are as we head into the final pool game and and how they've played, maybe in comparison to some of the other teams we would have expected them to be, I guess, contending with for for a bit of success. Yeah, it's actually interesting you've mentioned the, the Keen Healy component, I think, because when you look at Ireland's game, and we'll, we'll talk a l- little bit about some statistics that kind of benchmarked Ireland against uh, the other Six Nations teams in the World Cup, uh, the rugby championship teams, and I, I've thrown Japan in there again, just to kind of get a sense of where Ireland are, are playing and, and how that compares to the top teams. And it, undoubtedly, one of the, the key components of, of Ireland attack is the attritional nature of it. And, and how a huge amount of dependency is 
placed and they're tied five and and their back row in in terms of ball carrying and even if you look from the the Russian game Ireland's top two ball carriers were Ty Byrne and Reese Ruddock um I think their uh, tied five uh carried 56 times in the game but only and I think this is a key point which could be relative to the fatigue that Keane Healy's talking about is of those 56 carries, uh, they only averaged uh, 0.69 meters per carry, so, so so not even a meter per carry, um, which could give a sense of, of a high level of fatigue or could could be by stint of um, other teams kind of getting um, on top of Ireland's attack in those tighter channels. But I thought that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at uh, the other, other teams from the weekend, that the biggest game was England Argentina top ball carriers Elliot Daly Johnny May uh, followed by Kyle Sinclair but obviously two outside backs there um, in the New Zealand game against Namibia top ball carriers were um, Jordy Barrett Jack Good you Anton Leonard Brown all backs um, and in the Japan Samoa game top three ball carriers carriers were Lameki Matsushima and Yamanaka all back three players. So it's kind of, it gives a a real kind of clear snapshot of what the other teams are doing. That sense of width that we, you can see through the naked eye, that's definitely where teams are trying to get the ball to with their ball movement and width. And Ireland are definitely playing that narrow type of attack. And then I think if you factor that in with with some of the other data uh, in terms of where Ireland rank in, in ball carries. So on average, Ireland are ranked third of that group of countries that I talked about for ball carries at about 137 per game. Uh, Australia are top with 151, and, and we know Australia really like that um, high possession-based game, low kicking-based game where where they want to dominate, uh, dominate possession. Um, and then when you factor in that Ireland have a really high um, carry count in games, their clean breaks... Um, ranked amongst the other teams is down well it's about midway it's it's sixth of those teams um, that we're talking about um, and in meters made they're they're well down the list um, they're down in eighth position so it's it's showing that they're while they're having a high carry count that their effectiveness both in kind of meters made and defenders beaten is has has not been uh as effective in the opening three games yeah that's really interesting and, and you mentioned Roderick and burn there and again with the naked eye they they impressed in in their ball carrying because you know the the technical bits of their carry were were so strong and in the timing you know you, you think of Tyburn coming around the corner late getting onto the ball before defenders have had a chance to to line him up for a double hit you think of Roddick's footwork and use of his fend or or his body lean just to get a an edge against a defender I thought his footwork is really good and he's probably not a guy you associate with that but he always got it got away from the shoulder and um into an arm maybe and he got over the gain line in that sense as well I thought the two of them in that particular area were really kind of I guess inspirational for their teammates and there was there was little bits they can take away from those two guys even if they're not involved in the the first choice team which looks like a, a likely scenario they did show maybe the way for for other guys technically absolutely Oh, and it's interesting, just to go back to the data that you pointed out there, like where Ireland are ranking fairly lowly uh, in relation to the teams that we would have perceived to have been fellow contenders going into a World Cup. On the flip side, is there, are there any positives to that style of kind of attritional play, uh, reliance on the tight five that Ireland are bringing to the table? 
or is it actually pretty much a flaw in in their makeup like for example do with that approach that attritional approach can you tie your teams down maybe more uh, more so than you would if you were going wide the way some of the other top nations are doing at the moment that's a really key point gavin because ireland's attacking shape is predicated on low error rate um, where they where they don't allow opposition access points into the game, their their breakdown has generally under Joe Smith been so accurate that that they do wear teams down and and tend to pull penalties out of teams, which which then gives Ireland field position, allows them to get into those structured attack, especially offline. At where again against Russia, Ireland showed some well they brought out some old plays, but inventive plays where where they tend to to destructure. Uh, and kind of break down defenses. So, but especially in the Russia game, again, humidity was definitely an issue um, in terms of the, the high air count. But when our, when Ireland are turning over possession, then it does make it very difficult for them to kind of uh, keep the foot on the throat and maintain that pressure. And I think if you're looking at what other teams are doing, like particularly in their attacking shape, but New Zealand and Japan are prime examples of. They're bypassing that first forward pod off nine uh, and trying to get to width or to the middle of the pitch as quick as they can. And then rather than sending that forward pod that they bypassed around the corner, that forward pod, pod just sets back on that near side and, they, and they'll come and play back to them. But there, there's definitely a genuine sense that other teams are being more efficient with their energy levels and, and using both their attacking kicking game, which again, when Ireland have used the attacking kicking game, particularly through Cardi, there's a Sexton try at the weekend, uh, the Sexton setup for the Omani try at the weekend, that those attacking kicks are paying dividends for most teams in, in the World Cup. So the variation between your attacking kicks and then not being so point-to-point in terms of the forwards you're using uh, to carry into contact, I think, is crucial for uh, for a team to be successful at the World Cup. So it's kind of a double-edged sword for Ireland then, Owen. Is it like if your error count is high using that attritional approach, it's going to basically negate what you're trying to do. Whereas if you can keep the mistakes to a minimum as has been a hallmark of Ireland or had been at least maybe last year, then it can be it can still be an an effective means of playing the game absolutely absolutely and i, I think joe joe's talked about when the humidity wears down and, and humidity to be honest from from being involved in super rugby for 6 years humidity is worse than rain uh, the film that you get on the ball is far slipperier than rain and it is very very difficult to um to maintain possession so if that humidity does drop and Ireland can get into more of a rhythm and be really really um accurate with the ball then i think it definitely i think it's it's a kind of uh, tactic that's worked for Ireland and they've had um, a huge amount of success with it. So I don't see why why reverting back to that won't draw success for them. But then if you look at New Zealand, albeit I guess they're playing significantly poor opposition in, in Namibia and Canada in their last two games, but uh, they're winning games with a high a high error count as well. Um, I think the twelve turnovers against Namibia. Um, Something similar against uh, Canada uh, was no, sorry, against Canada was twenty four, but they're throwing a huge amount of offloads, twenty two offloads against Canada, um, and uh, twenty six offloads against Namibia. So New Zealand are are willing to force the pass, and uh, that fifty fifty, if it comes off, they're they're probably at least line breaking, if not scoring. Uh, but if not, 
giving the opposition a scrum or turnover possession, which they back to their defence to be able to defend off. Yeah, it's a fascinating contrast in ideologies. And I wanted to ask you both about New Zealand anyway, so now is as good a time as any. Uh, Murray, how do you think they're tracking, um, not even in relation to Ireland necessarily or in comparison to Ireland, but just based on what we might have expected them coming into the tournament? Are they going about things uh, the way that we sort of presumed they would? Yeah, I think it's largely gone as well as it could have gone for them. We we discussed that match against South Africa at the start where they had that phenomenal spell and, and blitzed the box and and pulled themselves clear and were able to to soak up that pressure from the the incredibly aggressive Springboks defense and then be really clinical in taking the opportunities when they did manage to slightly break it up with some really brilliant um, aerial competition and putting pressure on the box in that sense and since then as Owen mentioned the the quality of the opposition has has been poor but I guess you can only put away what is in front of you and while the error count has been high it's just been enjoyable and fun to watch their invention um, and their ability to be so versatile and adaptable. They didn't have an out half obviously against Namibia. They had Jordy Barrett who must be the tallest out half ever I'd say. Six foot five and gangly but (laughs) seriously quick and skillful and he showed he was well able to step up there and then Perinara was kind of slotting in there as well and and they managed that brilliantly and, and some of the tries they scored, like the Perinara one right at the end was just breathtaking, really, that offload from, from Brad Weber in behind the back. Um, and numbers on backs just don't count for a lot for them. Once they get into those wide channels, whether it's a back row, a, a prop passing from first receiver, they're they're more than capable of shifting um, and backs are hitting rocks as well. We spoke about that Aaron Smith example on, on the George Bridge try against the box where he goes in and clears out that rock and Ryan Crotty plays scrum half. So that is a real, it's a real edge for them that they're so comfortable in taking advantage of any opportunity. Um, so yeah, they look they probably look exactly where we expect them to be at this stage of it, but with Brody Retallick also coming back in and the ability to change up because of the, the weakness of the opposition and, and give guys key key guys rests at the right time, it just suits them particularly well and, and they're looking like they're tracking really nicely. As Owens mentioned there, the, the ambition of their play is just uh, superb to watch and um, yeah, they're, they're in very good nick. Oh, and just put it into context how big a boost it is to get a player like Brody Retallick back into an already formidable pack. Um, I think he was like he came off after half an hour against Namibia, but by all accounts, he was doing sprints on the pitch at half time. So I presume it was just about getting him minutes because he is that important to them. Absolutely. Uh, and probably one of the areas in New Zealand's game, like if we go back to ranking. Um, those Six Nations teams, rugby championship teams and, and Japan in the game so far, uh, New Zealand's on-edge success is, is second bottom from that group at, at 87%. So that is definitely an area of their game, especially when they get into into the quarterfinals, semifinals, when they're coming up against top-tier nations, that, that Retallic will make a huge difference to their line-out and, and give them an extra little bit of stability there because it's probably probably the one area of their game that, that they won't be so happy with um, with one game to go on the pool. Uh, what about that, uh, before we move on to England, just wanted to touch upon the France-Tonga game purely because it was so close to becoming another monumental upset, like a repeat of 2011. Um, but yeah, again, I suppose we'll chat about England in, in greater detail in a couple of moments, but like, do France have a sting in their tail at all, Murray, or are they just kind of going to peter out in a quarter final, presuming they get that far? 
Yeah, I mean they'll they'll be pretty pleased. They're three out of three and um, looking really good. They they've been inconsistent in, in what they've delivered across the course of games. You think of the first half against Argentina where they were superb. It was breathtaking attacking play. The backline clicked wonderfully well. Um, but since then, it's been a lot more error strewn. And I think some of the changes they made will they'll have been disappointed with the impact made by those guys going up against against England. It's it's Saturday, isn't it? I think in in Yokohama. Um, depending on how England change up their team, but you would expect England to have too much for them in that sense. And and again, in a quarter final, you would have very much the same expectation, particularly based on the last few years and and the consistent kind of underperformance from them. It, it's almost it's more surprising when they're when they're good for eighty minutes than than they're not. Um, so yeah, I, d- I don't I don't know if anyone will be particularly worried about getting them in in the quarterfinal even with their history of of causing upsets and and their ability to to score um when the game breaks up slightly they've really talented individuals but i i feel like they're maybe not just on that on that very top tier of contenders yeah um england's task at the weekend last weekend probably made somewhat easier on paper by thomas lavanini's red card Although even when Argentina were down to 14, it was a bit of a slugfest. Owen, what did you make of England's performance overall? Yeah, to be honest, England hadn't lost to Argentina since 2009. So it had been obviously 10 years since the taste of defeat. So um, I guess from a, a backing point of view, you would have backed England to beat Argentina. But yeah, Lavanini's red card, I think it's the second of his career. And he's got five yellow, yellows to his name as well. So uh, disappointing, his lack of discipline really put the game to bed for Argentina. There was no really feasible way back for them. But um, yeah, I think I think England have been impressive. I think they're showing a real dynamism in in their kind of, in their pack with their Sinclair is, is a really, really dynamic carrier, tight head. Um, Underhill, who I, who I wouldn't have known a huge amount before the World Cup, has, has really impressed me and has brought a hard edge to that back row. And then, I think what's really impressive is how how they're utilizing Vudapola and Tulagi as as decoys in a lot of their plays, particularly off starters. When you when you look at that, uh, I think it was their second try off a lineette. It's a, it's an inventive setup where they put Youngs the scrum half at the front of the lineette and they will put Owen Farrell to the halfback position. Uh, and as the ball is delivered into the lineette, Youngs rolls around from the front where his starting position is at the front, comes to the dr- traditional halfback position. And as that's happened, Farrell has kind of drifted out into midfield to become first receiver. Uh, and then they play really two, it, it's typical rugby league type pictures. It goes Farrell out the back of the hard running Vunapola um, to uh, George Ford. Uh, George Ford gets the ball, turns the corner. And now it's Manu Tualangi, their next best ball carrier. Use him as a decoy and go out the back to... Uh, to Watson, who times his pass perfectly to Daly, and that was a build up to that second try. Um, and I thought their use of, of, as I said, those ball carriers, not just as batting rams, but uh, uh, as decoys, which makes it so hard for the defence to initially kind of have to respect the front door and then be able to push off. And, and I think that little bit of variation and the dynamism that they're showing in, in their attack and, and they've got a low error count. They're, they're not conceding many penalties. I think their turnover count was uh, just under, um, it was 10 at the weekend. So those entry points or access points that we're talking in the game, that a penalty count of seven and a turnover count of 10. So they're not really allowing opposition into the game and, and, 
balancing it, uh, the running game with a, a kicking game, the, the 36 kicks in uh, in the game against Argentina. So I think they've got quite a nice balance to their game, which um, which makes them a kind of force to be reckoned with whoever they face in the quarterfinal, most likely Australia at this stage. Yeah, Murray, I suppose you're in fairly good nick if, if you can afford to use absolute behemoths as decoy runners <laughs> yeah it definitely helps with getting defenders to sit down and, and some of the Irish guys mentioned that after that Twickenham hammering where you, you just got to respect Manu to Alagi on that line because you're never really going to recover back in if he, if he does get the ball I guess the biggest concern for them coming out of this game was that Billy Vunapola picked up that ankle issue and, and they got him off at half time I think they're still waiting to announce the, the results of that scan but obviously a guy they need to be fully fit. He just had so much with his ability to offload, stand up in tackles, be a decoy. He can play make um, and he works hard for them as well. So they'll be kind of waiting anxiously on that, even though they do have a number of exceptional athletes in the pack. There's just so many good carriers and hitters in that pack, even guys who aren't in the first team who can make massive impact in in every contact situation and, and also have a bit of skill like Sinclair can really play and, and use those link passes when they get into that lovely shape, which I thought they did wonderfully well in this game at times um, and getting to the opposite touchline. Obviously, when the opposition is down to 14, it makes more sense to do that. But even if I go back and look at the, the kind of opening exchange to this game, I was really impressed with how England did because Orda Pieta, who came into the team, the Argentinian team at out half, he, he kind of stinks a diagonal kick for Moroni. He dribbles ahead um, and you might think, oh, that's a let off. But really, it's wonderful work rate from Johnny May to get back, cover it. They still got a five metre scrum to defend. But then Elliot Daly makes a try, a try saving rather tackle on, I think it was Carrera, so on the other edge of the pitch. So they do give up three points, but they worked really hard not to give up more there. And then their response was was brilliant. They I think it was Daly's first attacking kind of uh, flurry was a, a kick return attack down the right-hand side with Watson linking with him there and showing that they've improved in that aspect of the game. They haven't really been renowned for that, but I think they're playing turnover possession and kick return possession much better than ever really with, with those really exciting back three players. Then there's another attacking kick, the grubber from Daly down the left hand, it rolls into touch and um, sorry, Argentina are actually forced to carry it in and then there's a mall penalty advantage and they score off it. So, a really resounding response to it that showed some of those qualities that Owens mentioned there. The mall power from the pack, the, the excellent attacking, kicking game, the developing uh, k- uh, kick return game. So there's so many strands to it. They they really, I feel like more than ever, they look like Saracens in the way they play, especially with those screen plays that we've mentioned. It's like simple. It's not easy. It's simple stuff that's done superbly well with everyone who run, who's running a decoy or screen line being a genuine viable option, you have to respect them. And everyone who's throwing that pass behind being an option to to carry themselves as well. Ford and Farrell are so good at staying square up the pitch um, and and not shaping with their body language to allow you an early read. Farrell, it's it's one, wonderful sometimes. You, you look back at it and even with a couple of watches, you're kind of thinking, well, he's really shown nothing to the defender there. It's so hard to, to read off and, and get an early drift or jockey out towards the touchline and, and work with the guys outside you. So people are getting disconnected dealing with them. And it definitely hasn't been perfect from them either. The error count, which we mentioned, like that's been high for everyone in this World Cup. And and England, I think, have, have managed well not to be really frustrated by it. They're bringing that work ethic I mentioned as well from the, from the wings. And there is such variety in, in who can be the playmaker, who can be the kicker. They've got left footers, they've got right footers. Um, and then they've got like Jack Noel, who's not even who hasn't even been starting, but he's coming on and, and scoring a, a brilliant individual try, albeit with some poor tackling. So there's definitely a lot to like about them at the moment. And 
underpinning everything I always go back to it like physically they're just they've got some absolute freaks um, so I think they'll be just hoping beyond hope that Billy Billy Vunapola's ankle is okay and and then they can maybe manage players through this final game against France and be in really good nick for for the for the quarterfinals. But that underlines it again. Injuries can change everything in a flash. Even I'd say Razi Erasmus' heart was in his mouth as Gio Aplon went over in his ankle. That looks like it's going to be okay as well. But after a kind of positive result, you're you're always worried that something like that can can change everything, or a couple of instances like that can change everything. Um, but they do look in good nick. Yeah, we're recording the podcast on a Monday, and I think it'll be Tuesday before we hear the results of Billy Vunapola's scan. Even allowing for all of the ballast that England have at their disposal, Owen, he's a player who, with ball in hand especially, can probably do the work of two or three players in that it (laughs) takes about five defenders to take him down, generally speaking. So how massive a loss would he be, particularly going into this kind of grueling run of fixtures that England now face? I mean... Okay, Argentina, they get the job done fairly comprehensively, but France, you know, will have it in for England as they tend to. And then either Wales or Australia, again, kind of historic rivals, and that's only a quarterfinals. So as Murray says, you know, a couple of knocks here or there, and even the strongest squad in the world can be somewhat depleted, particularly with a a grueling run like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think his importance is signified by the, the volume of rugby he's played uh, to date, both in the warm-up games and through the World Cup. I think, I think he'd probably be right up there with minutes played for England. So undoubtedly kind of a catalyst to, to their attack yeah, and how they want to utilise him both with the ball and then to manipulate opposition defences. But I have been super impressed with Ludlam, uh, who again, I would, would have known very little about uh, prior to the World Cup. But I think... He, he is a player, he reminds you of kind of like a Sean McMahon who, who played for the Rebels and Australia before moving to Japan, where not not huge in stature, but shows an enormous fight and contact and, and just has a real belligerence about him. And I really, really like the look of him. So 100% Vinopolis, uh, if he was to be injured and miss a couple of big games, would, would be sorely missed by England. But I think a guy like Ludlam could come in and kind of, have a, have an Im- impact and an influence on on England's attack. I rate him very highly. Yeah, and that's the I, I would just add like it's, that's the fun of the World Cup as well, isn't it? It's, Lewis Ludlam probably wouldn't be familiar to to many people at all. He was a bit of a a bolter to get in there, but now he's more than made his impact. And it, it, it is exciting to see people like that stepping up. We saw Jordan Patea making his debut at nineteen. Um, now he he didn't last too long in the game, but. His first touch, I think he ran over someone. His second touch, he scored a, a, a try in Test Rugby at 19. And his third touch was an assist, which was just remarkable. I guess there's massive excitement over him, Owen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he was unfortunate. He, he sustained a, an injury earlier in the season after making a, a massive impact against Highlanders. I think it was in the first couple of rounds of Super Rugby. He was just unstoppable and was kind of running over the top, top of guys like Ben Smith um, at that point. So... He, he gave a very early indication and, and I think the Fox Sports commentary were very much emphasising uh, his positive performance after what was probably in an accurate performance by the Wallabies against Uruguay. So, yeah, he's a guy I, I could definitely see in the 23 uh, going into into the knockout stages. I think I think Checker really likes what he sees and, and while he definitely is a centre and that's where he will end up playing, I think to kind of ease him into test rugby, he'll, he'll end up on the wing uh, in the short term. Yeah. The other thing, I guess, to, to mention, Gav, is just the, the Japanese story rolling on. Like, that has been... A real highlight. Obviously, Ireland uh, suffered at the hands of it, but against Samoa again the other night, the support was 
absolutely insane. I, I wasn't in the stadium watching it in a in a bar in Fukuoka and the the support in there was just off the charts good. And it's such a feel good story to have them um even though in the circumstances of the win. I know some people are questioning how a, a scrum crooked scrum feed was called for the first time in in years really uh when they most needed it, but uh, there's so much to like about how they play. Owens mentioned like some of their attacking stuff and there's just a lovely momentum about them and it's so good for the tournament, obviously, to have the hosts uh, in the position they're in and, and winning the way they're winning. And there's so there's so many kind of stars, I guess, for the, the Japanese people to to kind of get around. Like Matsushima has been obviously sensational in attack. Himeno in the back row is just an absolute freak. He's been one of the best players in the tournament so far. And um, there's many other guys, Lafayette with those touches in attack as well. So it's incredible to see the level of the the support because even at the moment, I'm here in Fukuoka, I went to see the the baseball on Saturday. Uh, the local team were, were playing during the playoff series. And obviously baseball is huge in, in Japan, very popular. But the next day they were down on, on page three and four of the paper because on the front was was the Brave Blossoms and their story uh, analysis. And obviously I couldn't make too much sense of it, but it's just wonderful to to see how much it's been embraced here. And you'd hope that really in the long term, this World Cup, if Japan can now obviously go on and, and get that quarterfinal, it would mass- leave a massive legacy and, and really grow the game to the point that they're going to be consistent contenders. Yeah, even from... A distance it's been pretty magical to uh, witness and obviously um, Scotland have a game in the meantime against Russia they've made 14 changes to that Darcy Graham being the only player to retain his place from the victory over Samoa but that Scotland versus Japan game um, how would you see that going from this juncture Owen I think the bookies have it around uh, even either way like so as much as Japan have been absolutely flying it uh, you know would it be wrong basically to completely write off Scotland going into that game like particularly if they can sort of build up ahead of steam during the week against Russia yeah absolutely and um, you talked earlier on about Ireland having that opportunity to take a little bit of a kind of mental and physical break um, from the competition and while Japan have had probably the best turnarounds of any team in the World Cup I think think the competition rightly so has has been good to them there Um, I think I do feel at some stage there will be a little bit of a come down, uh, particularly, I, I think, from that Ireland game. There was such an emotional high off the back of it that I, I, I thought they would they would struggle a little bit against Samoa, but um, they proved me wrong. And I, I just think they've got such a good balance to their game between the, the volume of kicks to run percentage. They're not overplaying their hands like they kicked. 31 times against Samoa at the weekend, which which is relatively high. Uh, and they're, and I think it was kind of signified earlier in the game, that first line out attack, it was just inside Samoa's half, so a good opportunity to run. And Tamora just puts a bomb straight up on that right side for his winger and they win the ball back. And then they go into that wide, wide shape and uh, end up getting a penalty. And really, really interesting is they've taken double the amount of goal kicks than any other team in the competition. So they've had uh, 10 kicks a goal. I think the next highest is, f- is five. Um, so they're taking every uh, three points available to them and building a score and kind of building an entry into the game through kind of three six nine, which you wouldn't necessarily kind of associate with Japan. And, and I think the other really... Um, not surprising, but um, I guess impressive stat is how good their set pieces has been. They had they had a hundred percent return from scrum and line it against Samoa, and, and in that second half when they really needed to get that bonus point try, I think one of the tries came off a maul, and the second one uh, in injury time came off the back of a dominant scrum where, as you mentioned uh, him earlier, uh, Murray Hamino 
had a really dominant carry and then that short side and then Matsushima who's been an absolutely electric form from fullback just had too much footwork uh, that close to the line to score from Japan so the signs are that that Japan are really comfortable with how they're playing they've got a really good balance between what they're doing they've been I, I mentioned an article um last week that they've been really efficient with how they use the forwards and their energy systems and and it's going to be a really difficult game for Scotland but I think at some stage there could potentially be a little bit of a, an emotional lull coming off the back of as as Murray's alluded to kind of some real highs that that's been kind of ch- talked about in the press and in the public so yeah, it's a it's a big big game on Sunday. I can't wait to watch it. Yeah, it should be an absolute cracker. Uh, before we let you go, gents, because I know it's getting late there. Um, early doors, of course, in the week. But how are you expecting Ireland to line out against Samoa? Obviously, we kind of need a bonus point to just be absolutely assured of uh, of progression. Can we expect essentially a full strength team, Murray? We spoke about it last week that. Johnny Sexton might get an hour. We'll see, obviously, if Carberry is available to play, but there's Jack Hardy there as well. What do you um, what do you expect from Schmidt's match day 23? Yeah, you, you got to go essentially fully locked and loaded. You can't take that risk um, and potentially look back with huge regret. Andy Farrell mentioned it today. He, he was actually asked this question. He said, it's definitely not an option to wrap guys in cotton wool. Super important game. He said, we're fully in and we're looking for our best performance of the competition. Potentially, if, if things had worked out differently, I had those three wins out of three, as we discussed, that they might have had that flexibility, but I, I really don't think they have that now. Um, potentially, if there's a, a niggle or two to, to key players, you, you might, but I think as, they, as they've been saying, Sexton will start and play uh, a good stint. You'll have Henshaw back in there in some shape or form, um, and essentially a first-choice, full-strength team to, to go. And as crucially as, you know, you you got to get that quarterfinal, obviously, and, and a bonus point makes sure that and you potentially get through even just with a win. But you got to get that momentum rolling again and get any little doubts and nags out of their head and, and go into a quarterfinal with a bit of momentum behind you. And, and having had that best performance in the competition, that would be so ideal for Ireland because it just adds that little pep into their step going into a really tough quarterfinal no matter what happens. So, yeah, I think we'll see them go very strong. Sounds good to me. Murray, Owen, thanks a million, lads. We'll chat to you again. Cheers, appreciate it. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks, Owen. We will be back on Tuesday morning with a members podcast, The 42 Rugby Weekly Extra, members.the42.ie, if you want to tune into that one. We've been doing them pretty much every morning. They've been good fun. And uh, the members WhatsApp group as well is a hive of activity with uh, <laughs> all sorts of analysis and questions and everything going on in there. It's been really enjoyable to uh, be a part of that. So until tomorrow morning, that's Tuesday morning, uh, have a good evening and take it easy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> it is coming on! Robbie, Robbie, weekly. Little reverse pass, and The room is spinning and the words I'm sticking